Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Tom Moran here from Tom's Big Spiders. So to kick this episode off, we're going to backtrack a little bit and go back to last week's episode because as I anticipated, we got a lot of emails, a lot of questions about it. Now we had Emil and Erin from the Tarantula Sustainment Project on to talk about their project to try to make sure that certain species of tarantulas are going to remain available from state to state. Mostly right now they're focusing on the Sri Lankan Pizzolotheria species and the Brazilian endemic. So those are the species that are only from Brazil. And I figured this would happen, although we tried to explain some of this stuff briefly in the middle of it, I didn't want it to turn into a whole discussion of the legalities of importing and getting tarantulas over state lines in the United States. But a lot of people were unfamiliar with some of these laws we were talking about and asked for further explanation. Also, when the Sri Lankan Pizzolotheria stuff came up, a lot of folks came out of the woodwork to explain that they had received ones most likely illegally. It seems that a lot of them have kind of taken upon themselves that now that this law has you know been a few years past that nobody's really watching they're go- they're going to try to find ways to get these species from state to state now I understand some of the attraction of it because it can be difficult depending on the state you're in to find these species I've talked to a lot of folks that discover peaceful etheria they go out there they decide they're going to collect them all and realize they can't find anyone in their state to legally acquire the Sri Lankan Pisolotheria species from so it's very enticing when somebody offers say I don't know a mystery box or something and they put one of them in there but unfortunately that's still illegal so what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit a little bit of time at the beginning of this podcast and just go over some of the legalities of shipping tarantulas in the United States and again I apologize to international folks we will get to a non the U.S. specific topic in a minute, but we are in the United States, and I've spoken to many folks about it. There are some restrictions over which ones we can keep, and there is the constant, at least for those of us who follow this type of stuff, there is the constant fear that somewhere down the line there's going to be even more litigation that's going to make it even more difficult for us to get our tarantulas in the United States. And I think in some ways the hobby is going to bring some of this on themselves because we continue to skirt and then flaunt that we're skirting these laws that are in place. It doesn't matter whether we agree with them. It doesn't matter whether we think they really are doing what they supposedly are trying to do. It's still illegal and it looks bad. And all you have to do, I think I've said it many, many times that my Google feed always features any tarantula articles that are in the news. They've obviously picked up. I'm interested in them. So I get a lot of those. And a lot of them are not particularly kind to the hobby. A lot of them look at the hobby as part of the problem, not the solution. Unfortunately, when you're in the hobby, you think, oh, I'm keeping these beautiful animals that are going to eventually be extinct in the wild. And I do think there is a grain of truth. I've shared before that I do worry that someday that the majority of the species that are out there will only exist in collections. However, I also think that we are also contributing to that. So what we're going to do is just quickly go through or somewhat, we'll see how it goes, somewhat quickly go through some of the legalities as far as ordering tarantulas online that people may or may not be aware of. I know a lot of folks on that listen to this podcast have been in this hobby for a while, know this. I know some have been in this hobby for a while and don't know this. I was victim to one of these before. And I'm sure that there are a lot of folks out there that are just finding this podcast. They're getting into the hobby. They're like, oh, we can listen to this guy talk about tarantulas for 45 minutes to an hour every day. And that are, have no idea these laws exist. So what I want is just people to be informed. Then if people go out and they skirt the law and do it, it is 100% on them. I do feel bad in instances where people email me after they've done something Hey, Tom, I just ordered this from a place and they sent me a Sri Lankan species over state lines. I had no idea. Is this illegal? Did I do something illegal? Well, yes, you were kind of tricked into doing something illegal. So to kick it off, let's talk first about shipping tarantulas in the United States. Right now, the only legal way to do it is FedEx. I do believe FedEx. It used to be against FedEx rules. We did something a while back where some folks got together, contacted FedEx, said, what can we do to make this legal? Had to present to some FedEx people. I made a video at one point showing how they're packed up, how there's no way they can escape in the mail and pack correctly. They wanted to know the animals were safe. They wanted to know people were safe. So now we can ship during through FedEx, which is, again, the only legal way to ship. So some folks may be asking themselves, wait a minute, I just got a package in from US Post. Unfortunately, that is illegal. There's a certain dealer I used years ago that does this. The shipping was so much cheaper than everywhere else. I'm like, I don't understand why everybody doesn't do this. And I promoted them. And again, I... I shared before this individual had good reasons or explained why they were doing what they were doing. It was an archaic, it's an older law, it's not a very informed law. 
However, it's the law. So to break it down, federal law prohibits the use of the U.S. Post to ship any. Originally, it was poisonous, which obviously that means something that you eat. It doesn't go with venomous, but then they included venomous or threatening animals. And that includes, currently includes tarantulas. I believe back in the 1980s, somebody tried to fight it and say, listen, they're not all that venomous, especially the ones in the United States. Like if you're talking the uh, fauna palma species or if you're talking New World species, not that venomous. But they didn't want to differentiate. It would be too much. So they just said any of them. So it is illegal to ship U.S. posts. So if you're ordering U.S. posts and using that to ship something, you are breaking the law, whether you know it or not. I've done it. Obviously, I've just admitted to it. I've not only ordered from the vendor I was talking about earlier, but I used to order from some places on, I believe it was Fauna Classifieds, and I would get stuff. It would be like, yeah, 20 bucks for shipping, and they would send it in U.S. posts. And I even posted some videos of this up, so basically flaunting the fact that I was having things shipped illegally. Now, what is the reality of the U.S. Post Office either confiscating your package or coming to your house and arresting you for doing this? It's it's obviously minuscule. However, that's not to say they if they find out what's in the box, they can't do that. It's not to say they won't call you on it. There was a situation several years ago where somebody that was watching my reviews of this dealer went out, bought something, went to go pick up their box from the post office. The post office official said, what do you got in there? And they said, oh, I got some tarantulas. And the post office official immediately told them that that was illegal and they could go ahead and confiscate their box if they wanted to. Now, they let them walk away with it, but the warning was made clear. So if somebody knows their law that's working these desks when you're picking up their boxes or delivering it and they know what's in the box, they could very easily take your stuff. Again, does it happen very often? No, but the threat is there and we're looking at the hobby as a whole. We do not want to be perceived as a bunch of smugglers and scofflaws who are willing to skirt laws to get our animals. And if you want look at how the rest of the country, the rest of the world, the people who are not into tarantulas, look at the hobby. It's not in a very kind light. They look at us like these weird people that collect animals that nobody wants to keep them in little boxes and are often smuggling them in from other countries, pulling them out of the wild. It's not a good look for us or somebody in the hobby to get caught using the U.S. Post Office shipping something illegally. Now, imagine if you will, and I don't think this is too unrealistic. This person, in this case, the person running the desk, knew that tarantulas were illegal to ship, said something about it. Now imagine they realize somebody's doing this and they start tracking them. They could easily, this is something they could easily confiscate the stuff. They Would they get police involved? Maybe not. Could it make news? Yes, it could. You picture, I can read the article now. A person caught smuggling creepy tarantulas in U.S. post office and a big thing about how it's illegal. It just makes us look bad. So again, one of the themes running through this is I'm going to ask people not to do the old question, all right, so what are the chances of this happening? What are the chances of me getting busted? What are the chances of them confiscating my stuff? My hope is that people will just recognize that, hey, it's not worth it should we get caught. It's not worth it should something like this blow up in the public. So if you're using the U.S. Post Office to ship or receive tarantulas, you are breaking the law. Now, there's another side to this that isn't often mentioned. It's not just illegal. The U.S. Post Office is incredibly unreliable. For folks that order stuff through the U.S. Post Office, think of how many times something's been either lost, delayed, smashed. It's just not a reliable or safe way to transport an animal. Last I knew, folks would usually use the priority two-day and last time I had to ship something priority two day, it wasn't even animals. It depended on where it was going in the country, how long it would take to get there. So sure, if it was close by, it was two days. It could be three days. I've had packages lost before. I had a package of tarantulas lost during a cold snap. It's not a humane way to ship them because of the increased chance. Now, obviously, anybody that shipped through FedEx lately knows FedEx also has its issues. So I'll, let's just head that one off. I'm sure somebody's going to go, I've had issues with that. I get it. But I would say that having stuff come from FedEx for years, tarantulas come from FedEx for years, having had a handful of them come from U.S. Post, I've had more issues with U.S. Post than I have for FedEx. So let's just, even if we're looking at it like, oh, I could save some money, and what are the chances of somebody really catching me? It's still illegal, and you're putting your spiders at risk. And I would hope that people that are getting into the hobby will at least recognize the fact that we do not want to needlessly imperil our spiders by having them possibly sit in a box somewhere at a postal depot while the package is lost. So shipping tarantulas, receiving tarantulas using the U.S. Post is illegal in the United States, and I do not encourage it. Now, the next thing we're going to talk a bit about is something that I've covered before, I believe, on the podcast. I've also did an article on it, and I am going to ask. Normally, I don't promote myself. I don't like going, hey, go out and read this. I wrote it. It's really good. However, I think people really need to understand how this works. 
Brown boxing is when an individual has an unlabeled package of animals shipped directly to his or her local post office or personal residence in an illegal effort to avoid having to pay for the permits or paying the often exorbitant costs associated with shipping legally. So this can be done on a small scale where somebody orders from a place overseas. You used to be able to go on arachnid boards and, again, fauna classifieds, and people would be like, we offer international shipping. And folks would be like, oh, they're in England, but they'll ship to the U.S. It must be legal, right? It's illegal. It's called brown boxing. The other way it's done is on a large scale. And this is incredibly damaging to not only the hobby, it's flat out, it's smuggling. That, that's the other term for brown boxing. It's smuggling. So not only is it smuggling, not only is it bringing animals illegally into the country, it's often used to undercut people that are doing it legitimately. Because for somebody that wants to legally import animals, tarantulas into the United States, it costs a lot of money for insurance, the overnight shipping, uh, the permits. It's not a cheap endeavor. So people will get into the hobby. They'll decide they're going to sh- sell. They find somebody overseas and they go, hey, listen, I don't have the permits for this. How about you just box some stuff up and send it to me? Or worse still, they will find people in the countries where these spiders live and they will have them go into the wild, collect them. So now we are actually flat out poaching and then smuggling the poached animals over the borders. I would love to say this doesn't happen anymore, but I was just informed recently about a situation where it's happening right now with a species that has already caused quite a ruckus in the United States. I'm talking about T. celadonia. That's a newly discovered species endemic to Brazil. And there are folks apparently, which blows my mind, in the United States, even though we're actively breeding these and pairing them in the United States, people are breeding them all over the place. There's captive bred slings. Some idiot scumbag is out there basically trying to import them in directly from Brazil. So this is the type of stuff that will kill the hobby. This is the type of stuff that doesn't, it it puts everybody in a terrible negative light. So as a warning, if you are ordering from somebody who's not a reputable dealer, like if you're ordering from somebody that's an individual on say arachnoboards or fauna classified, you find somebody somewhere and they are in another country and they want to send you something that is illegal. There is no if, ands, or buts about it. I've had people go, oh, what if I get the permits? Go ahead and try to get the legal permits for that and tell me if that box, that $100 box, $200 box We'll go $500 box is going to be worth it after the money you're going to pay to legally bring them in. It's not worth it. So if you're doing that, if you're ordering, and this, the good thing is I haven't heard of this happening very much lately, which is great. Back several years ago, it was happening quite a bit. However, the other place it happens is if you're ordering from somebody, a lot of these vendors will pop up or these people will pop up online and advertise and groups and such, and suddenly they have this great selection of tarantulas, but they can't account for where they came from. That's a concern to me. That should be a concern to you. So I love trying out different dealers. I love trying to find new people that I can recommend because, again, the more people we have selling them, I think the more healthy the hobby is. However, there are times I go out there, I look at a site, I go, wait a minute, where did they get all these adults from? Wait a minute, where are they getting this species from? This isn't even hasn't even been in the hobby that long. And then I start to question, what's going on here? So there are little telltale signs of when somebody's not doing it on the up and up. When in doubt, if you are concerned that somebody you might buy from is not a legitimate importer, ask, reach out and ask. They should be able to account for when they imported it. They should have the import licenses. They should be able to licenses. They should be able to show the fact that they brought the import in legally. That's something that's again. They're not going to show you their numbers. Don't ask them. I, I want to see how many you brought in numbers. That's going too far. I mean, it is a business, but they should be able to prove that they brought them in legally. Now, if they can't prove that then I would probably steer away from them. Now, remember, there are some folks, the way it works over here in the United States is some people have the importer's license, other people will go in on that import. So you may have one person is bringing the import in under their license, but they're kind of selling different parts of it to other people. They're all pitching in for it. Those other people should be able to get some type of documentation that, yes, I did this legally, I brought it in with this person. So that's something you could always do if you're concerned. I will tell you, a lot of the major ones out there right now are doing it legitimately. This usually isn't people that have been a established for some time, although it has happened in the past. There was a situation years ago where a very prominent dealer was busted by basically brown boxing from somebody, I believe in Germany, and it made the news and everything. So can it happen? Yes. But from what I've gathered recently, just talking to people, and I do talk a lot to a lot of folks that know the folks that are selling they're doing it on the up and up. However, if you, there's somebody new or you've found it online, they've got a great deal, they've got something you've never seen before, 
and you're kind of, kind of left curious to know where did you get that from, it doesn't hurt to ask. And then you make the decision. Again, it comes down to, I can't make the decision for people. There are going to be people that listen to this podcast that roll their eyes and go, I don't really care. These rules are all stupid anyway. And we've I've spoken with folks before about the fact that if the U.S. government does come down harder on the hobby, if they do make it more difficult for us to get these species, the ones that are going to be hurt are the folks that are doing it legally, that will not brown box, that will not smuggle, that will not use irreputable dealers to get the animals. Like, I would be out of business because I'm not going to do that. It's not worth it to me. However, the ones that will continue to buy these are the ones that are doing all the illegal stuff. It's, it's always the way it works. So let's be realistic about this. I'm thinking the majority of folks listening right now, we're going to be the ones impacted. We're going to be the ones getting in trouble and paying for the fact that other people can't play by the rules. So brown boxing, it's a bane to the hobby. It's disgusting. It should not be tolerated in any shape or form, whether on a large scale or a small scale. And if you are knowingly receiving animals from overseas or from over borders, then shame on you because you're part of the problem. You're part of the issue that this hobby has right now of not being able to do things clean. So Next one we're going to talk about, and this is the one that really freaks some people out, the Sri Lankan Pislatheria species. I explained this a bit in the podcast as we're going, but I didn't want to turn it into a whole negative thing with Aaron and Emil on. That wasn't what it was about. We needed to mention it to indicate why something like this was needed, but I didn't want to really dig into it. We're going to dig a little more into it today. I did cover this a while back when it all happened, and I did write an article, again, not to promote my own stuff. That's not what this is about, but I did write an article that kind of details it. But basically, back in 2018, I believe it was July 2018, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service released a report about Pisolotheria species. And in this report, it basically ruled that five species of Pisolotheria from Sri Lanka were deemed endangered species under the Endangered Species Act of 1973 and added to the list of endangered and threatened wildlife. Now, this includes, and this is the important part, write these down, have these, if you're a peaceful etheria person, you're just getting into them, write these down so you have the list so you know what to look for. Peaceful etheria fasciata, peaceful etheria ornata, peaceful etheria smithy, peaceful etheria subfusca, and peaceful etheria vitata. This went into effect August 30, 2018, so it's been, oh God, four years now, but my how time flies, and because of this, there are some things you can do with these species now that are legal, and there are some things that you can't do now because it's illegal. So let's start with the legal part first to make people feel a little more comfortable because I'm sure there's some folks that have never heard of this before right now and they're freaking out, and I'm sure there's some folks that heard me gloss over it last week and like, wait a minute, what's this about? Number one, hobbyists may still keep these species. If you have them, you can keep them. They're not going to take them. They don't want them. You can still keep the species. You can breed them. No issues there. Number two, hobbyists may buy and sell these species in their own states, meaning I can go to another dealer or vendor in Connecticut and I can purchase these species without fear of breaking any laws. There's no issue buying them from somebody in their own state. Hobbyists may send breeding loans across state lines. No money can be involved here. This cannot be a, here's a breeding loan and send me $100 in PayPal for shipping or some fake thing like that. It has to be a legitimate breeding loan. So they did say when they passed this rule that they did want it to be so people could continue to legally breed them in the United States. They weren't trying to crush them in the United States and make sure nobody could get them. They were trying to leave some openings for us to continue to breed them. They may also send a tarantula as a gift. Now, this is the one that seems to trip some people up. Some people are legitimately confused by it. Some people like to play dumb and use it as a way to skirt the law. This means that if you want, if I have right now, I have some Ornatas I just got legally gifted to me by Emil and who was just on the podcast. I was very excited to finally have them. I did my Peace Letheria video earlier and I didn't have the Ornata to show off. These were a flat-out gift. Emil sent them to me for free. There was no money exchanged for them. There was actually, they were labeled as what they were. That's important. There was a letter in it talking about the Tarantula Sustainment Project and talking about how the fact they were a free gift, no strings attached. It was a gift, the same way that if I were to send, I don't know, my mom a gift. It's a gift. It means she, my mom doesn't have to turn around and do something for me, send me something, send me money, send me a gift. It's a gift. And I want to make that very, very clear because this is the one that trips people up. Now, what is illegal as far as the Sri Lankan Peace species? 
Number one, foreign importation or exportation of these species. We can no longer import these in from overseas. Now, for a while, folks would get all the time, they would get imports in from overseas that would include the Pisolotheria species, including Sri Lankan ones. We can no longer do this. So that means we are basically limited to what we have in the United States right now. We also can't send them overseas. So I couldn't say, hey, I have a buddy in England. I'm going to sell him some of these over here. You can't do that. So that's one thing. Number two, interstate commerce involving these species. You cannot buy them online from another company that's in a different state than you. If they ship them to you, that is illegal. I want that made very clear. Illegal. So I can no longer, like if I had a bunch of Pisolotheria slings, say uh, Pivotata, and some people from different states said, hey, I want to grab some of these, I can't legally sell them to them. They can't cross state lines. This is the one that kind of makes it very difficult for us to get these now because in the United States and other countries, this might be something that's a little bit more difficult to understand. Each state is almost its own. I used to teach civics, so I won't get really into this, but each state's kind of its own little country in a way. So once we have these guys in one state, we're not allowed to bounce them over the state borders and sell them. And then the last one is possession of legally taken spiders, meaning you're not able to obviously own anything that's been pulled from the wild or smuggled out of the wild or poached. So let's break down where this gets interesting because this is where people have been skirting the rules. It was all, I can assure you, when all of this came out, they announced this in, I believe, what did we say? It was July of 2018. So they gave people a little heads up. Hey, this is happening. And it was basically so everybody could ask questions. So all of these questions, I can assure you, were asked and answered beforehand because people had obviously a lot of questions. Can we do this? Does this count? So let's go through some of the ways people have tried to skirt these that still remain illegal. So one thing they tried to do right off the bat was something like, hey, buy this species, and usually it had an extra money tacked on it, and you get a free Sri Lankan Pisolotheria species. It's illegal. They cannot be part of any transaction. They cannot be part of any deal where money exchanges hands for a product. They're not dumb. They realized that people were going to try to skirt this rule. So they said, no, it cannot be part of a sale. It can't be by this species. Get a free piece of Lotharia, Sri Lankan piece of Lotharia species. It's illegal. The other thing that people are doing now, and apparently this is happening quite a bit, and I have like three different names of uh, different dealers and folks that are doing it. They're being sold as part of mystery boxes. That is illegal. I've had several folks contact me since the Peace Lotharia video went up on YouTube. Then we just did the podcast last week where some more people contacted me. They said, I ordered a mystery box. I ordered whatever the type of box is called. And when I opened it up, I think I got one of the Sri Lankan species. Well, congratulations. They tricked you into doing something illegal. They are doing something illegal by selling it over state lines. It is part of a transaction. That is not a gift. As we said, if I send my mom a gift, it's not because she's buying something off of me. That's not how gifts work. A gift is exactly how it sounds. A gift is exactly what they meant it to mean. It means somebody sends it and says, here you go. This is yours. No strings attached. As soon as it is part of a sale, buy one, get one free or buy one, get the species free or in a mystery box that guess what? They're not sending. If they want to send you, and I would say this would be the best deal ever. If they want to send you a mystery box for free with the Sri Lankan pokey, awesome. I know some folks out there, I've been privy to a situation where somebody out there mistakenly might have started to sell them, realized it was an issue in the mystery boxes and has sent them totally free of charge, separate box, paid for shipping, made sure that the people understood why they were doing this. That's a free gift. That means that's not part of any transaction. Here you go. I have these pokies. You can have it. And that's a pretty cool thing that somebody would go those lengths to make sure they are following the rules. Unfortunately, there are a lot of folks that aren't following the rules by the sounds of things. A lot of folks that think because things have calmed down a bit with this, that it's okay to do it. And sadly, I think there are a lot of people in the hobby that are willing to take that chance because they're like, I can't get these otherwise. I need to have this spider. So I'm going to go ahead, skirt the rules, play dumb. I've had folks go, oh, well, it's really not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal until U.S. Fish and Wildlife makes it a much bigger deal. And as we talked about in the previous podcast, guys, they are occupying, I think Emil said it beautifully, they're occupying the same spaces we occupy. They are on arachnoboards. They are in many of the Facebook groups. I've been privy to folks flaunting the fact that they did something probably illegal while I know for a fact an agent is on and has responded. It's amazing. People don't understand this isn't some big, like, 
government unit that isn't monitoring it. They've been monitoring us for years, and we tend to, as a hobby, flaunt the stuff we do. We think it's a joke. People come on and go, I don't care. I'm going to get pokies any way I want. That's great. What type of message does that send to folks who have made this law? The people that made these laws are following what we're doing. So are they, and, and this is where, again, and I implore people, I'm hoping if folks are listening to some guy week after week drone on about spiders is because they share a legitimate love for these animals. They care about them. They care about their state in the wild. They want to do things legally. You want to be informed. So you're the people that I'm imploring to. Unfortunately, I've been... <laughs> It, because of the fact people will reach out and email me, I have heard from people who don't care. They don't, they're like, I don't care. I want these spiders. I want them and I don't care how I get them. It's a little bit legal, but are they really going to come to my house and seize my spiders? No, they're not. They're not going to come. Let's let's call it as it is. They're probably, now they, they could be listening to me right now and going, oh, we're not, huh? I almost wish it would happen because then people would realize there's that it's not a joke. Whether or not U.S. Fish and Wildlife it has manpower or wants to actually follow this to a point where they're going to go to some collector and go, you just received these illegally, we're taking this, is a moot point as far as I'm concerned. The fact is, they know we're doing it, they see it, it's a terrible look on the hobby, it's illegal, and it's not helping anybody. So if you've received Pisolotheria species as part of a purchase, I don't care if it was, hey, this is free, that's not a gift, that's buy one, get one free. If that was really a gift, then anytime I went to a store and they had to buy one, get one free, I go, I'm not buying one. I'm just taking the free gift. And they go, okay, take it. That's not the same. So let's stop pretending like it. Let's stop trying to find ways around this. We covered the whole thing a couple of years back about the, the jerk that was selling the hybrid piece of Letheria species to try to get around it. And that, of course, the thing that irritated me about that was that other people jumped on to defend this individual instead of just calling, you know, maybe having a conversation going, stop this. And now, if I'm not mistaken, I've been following this and, and collecting some information on it. This person is now out of the hobby. Thank God we exercised that one, but he has left a mess in his wake. These are not generally good people. The people that are doing this, the dealers are doing this, stop with this. They're good people nonsense. They're trying to make a buck. They're trying to make money. They are not, I can tell you right now, the people that legitimately care about the peace Letheria species and the legality of this and making sure people can get a hold of these are people like Emil and Aaron who are going out there. Emil is sending out free gifts to all kinds of people. He is walking the walk. He is not doing this because he wants to make money off it. The ones that are vending that are doing this, they're doing it because they're making money. It's it, Don't kid yourself into thinking, oh, they're trying to help the hobby. No, they're not. They're trying to make a buck. They see an opportunity to make money or offload ones that they have. So please, let's stop pretending there's some altruistic bent behind this. There's not. They're making money. Let's also... Stop with the whole thing. Oh, nobody knew. They didn't know any better. I'm done with that. If you're selling tarantulas to people and you don't know the law and haven't spent time learning what's legal and Ill illegal, please get the hell out. Show yourself the door. Get out of the hobby. We don't need you. I'm tired of that excuse as well. That's the other. Oh, they didn't know any better. Ignorance has never been a viable excuse for breaking the law. You can't can you imagine if the world worked that way. There's a 25 mile per hour speed limit and I'm going 70 and the cop pulls me over and I go, oh, geez, I'm sorry. I just didn't know. And the cop goes, oh, you didn't know? No problem. It's 25. Be careful. Have a nice day. That's not how it works. Think of how many laws out there there are. Nobody could possibly know them all. But when you're selling stuff to people, you need to be familiar with the legalities of what you're doing. This is not difficult to figure out. The information is out there. So people are either, so anybody that doesn't legitimately doesn't know it has to be willfully ignorant at that point. I mean, they're purposely trying to avoid finding out anything about it so they can play dumb. And that doesn't work. Because think about it, that's not a crime. That's that's a crime where you're driving somebody else to commit the crime with you. People do not know these laws because they're not responsible for selling them. Are Should you be responsible for knowing the laws? Yes, this is why we do podcasts like this. So folks out there, the ones buying him can now go, all right, I get it. I know what I can do and what I can't do. If I go to buy this box and I get this, this is illegal. If somebody says, hey, they'll send me a free Sri Lankan piece of Letheria species with this order, that's illegal. I want people to understand this because we need to be informed as the consumers, as the people buying these animals as well. We are not completely free of culpability here. We need to know the laws as well. And again, as I stated earlier, I was responsible 
that still bothers me because I had a bunch of folks ordering from a vendor that was selling through U.S. Post, and some people got some grief with it. I felt terrible because I was the one that encouraged this. So we need to be aware of these laws. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be people out there, and I know it's going to happen. They're just getting into the hobby that don't know about any of this stuff. But now the podcast is out. People can pass this along. And normally I do not tell people to pass along my stuff. I don't care. It finds, I, I love just the word of mouth. Like somebody will, or they'll do a search on Google, they'll find it. That's totally good by me, but I do want people to be aware of these issues. And before we close on this topic, there's another one I want folks to pay careful attention to. We've already talked a little bit about the Brazilian endemics, the species that are only from Brazil. Right now, we cannot import those into the United States anymore. With the T. Saladonia incident, basically officials from Brazil said, we have never given anybody legal permission to take any species of tarantula out of our country. So what that essentially means is that every single Brazilian species that's available right now, and check out the list, go to the Tarantula Sustainment Project, check out the list they have. Every one of those was smuggled. We, they were not obtained legally. They were smuggled out of the country. Now, a lot of them have been in the hobby for so long that we have huge captive bred populations of them. Let's not forget that. But some of these new ones that are popping up, if you see somebody announcing that they have a brand new species of tarantula that's never been in the United States and it is from Brazil... That was smuggled out, that is illegal, and that is disgusting. As much as we want all of our spiders, we see these pretty new spiders, that means somebody is going out there collecting them out of the wild illegally and selling them into the pet trade. Whether they grabbed a male and a female and are breeding them, the male and the female were poached. If they're grabbing an egg sac, possibly even more disgusting because those were slings that were meant to populate that area. A lot of times they'll go out, they'll grab egg sacs, they'll bring those out, they'll all of a sudden have a bunch of slings. That is just horrific and why people hate the tarantula hobby. That is us actively pulling them out of their environment. Now, I know that the other argument, I know the flip side argument with, well, they look at Brazil, they're tearing down their rainforest. I get it. I do. And I understand the line of thinking in that gray area where we're like, all right, we're going to be saving them, but we can't be saving them if we're the ones actually killing them and taking them out of the wild in the first place. It doesn't work that way. If we were legally taking them out, and we got some males and females and we're able to do it that way. That's one thing, but we're not. So please be aware if you see, my theory is if I see a dealer selling something that I know for a fact was just discovered, has not been in the hobby and is from Brazil and they suddenly have slings, that's a huge red flag to me. That's somebody I personally, I'm not telling people to do this. Last time I did this, we had a little thing going where all of a sudden it was cancel culture and that crap. That's not what this is. This is people being informed and making informed decisions. You want to break the law, that's on you, whatever. I'm saying I personally, even if I was into breaking the law, like one of those people, I am so out there with what I've got in my collection on YouTube, through podcasts, through the website, that I would just be flaunting it. There'd be no way to get away with, away with it. So even just from that point of view, it makes no sense, but I wouldn't do it anyway. I would not support somebody like that. So let's pay attention to that in the US. Across the world, if you're overseas, Please, guys, I know we want these guys. I know we see these spiders and they're beautiful, but let's for a bit just consider where they come from when we suddenly discover one. And they're like, oh, we found them in this remote region. And then all of a sudden, the hobby is flooded with them. Where do you think they're all coming from? That really takes away that stance that we have, that we're saving these creatures because we're actively helping with the deforestation, with the loss of territory. We're actively helping to diminish these wild populations. So that's it. Getting off my soapbox now. Somebody's always going to get, every time I do one of these, somebody gets all snippety with me. I honestly don't care. Wait, save your email because I'm not going to try to convince you. Because if you've already determined that this is okay and you're going to skirt the laws if you want to because you want that pretty spider that you've admired, that's on you, man. Don't try to change my point of view because I, I do see the sides of it, but this is the only side that makes sense to me. We have to start kind of, you know, policing ourselves. I've said it before and people get frustrated with me because it's usually the ones that are doing screwy stuff or the people that like support the people that are doing screwy stuff because they put them in their videos and on their podcasts and stuff. They're the ones that are scared with this kind of stuff, but I'm going to encourage you guys. And I mean this, I've already started compiling a list of the folks that are doing this. We've got receipts, we've got emails, we've got pictures feel free to send it along. I'm not doing anything with it right now. I'm not going to go do some big expose over it. But I will tell you, every once in a while, somebody will go, really, how much does this happen? And I can show how much it happens. I can show who's doing it. So feel free to chime in. I know nobody wants to go public with this stuff, and especially somebody that just received. I've had so many. I, I feel bad because I get people that email me, and they're freaking out. I just did something illegal. What am I going to do? Should I get rid of the spider? Should I? No, no, no. 
keep the spider, learn a lesson. That's what I usually say to people. You've learned a lesson. Don't do it again. I would not buy from somebody who tricks me into doing something legally. That's personally my opinion. You can do with it what you want. That's not cool. That's not okay. But if you've been one of the people that's done this, feel free. We've got a bunch. I mean, I've heard so much information in the last three weeks about what's going on with this with screenshots and everything. It's screenshots, emails, pictures of the spiders as they're opening them. There's so much out there. It makes me sick. So maybe if folks realize that we're starting to compile this stuff and that, you know, at some point, we could do something with it, they'll stop because I'm tired of it. It's ridiculous and I'm tired of having to answer emails from people who are freaking out because they were sold something illegally. So that's that part of the podcast. Again, I apologize for people overseas, but again, I I figure I like to hear about things that go on overseas as well. I love comparing the hobby from different countries. So hopefully you folks at least get some glimpse into it. I'm sure there's folks that usually I get my buddies from the UK is like, thank God we don't have to worry about that here. I've heard, if you could, this would be great as well. For folks that are in other countries, what regulations do you have to deal with? I'm pretty positive that in the Philippines, there are rules about what they can bring in. They were supposed to have a permit. I'm also pretty positive a lot of people don't bother getting them, which worries me. But if you would like to share with me, what it what rules do you have to follow? What laws are there in your countries that prohibit this? Maybe there's none. I've heard somebody was just talking. Who was I talking? I think it was my buddy Luis was talking about Canada's getting slammed with new rules with what they can bring and what they can't. Please feel free to let me know because I'd love to do an international version of this where we talk a bit about the laws in other countries so everybody can be informed. Obviously, I'm in the United States. I have a vested interest in the hobby in the United States. I'm familiar with the laws in the United States. What are the laws where you guys are at? So please feel free to drop me an email, post. Again, if you're somebody that's really received or thinks you received a spider illegally, whether the person was shipping U.S. Post, whether or not if you think you got somebody brown boxing, let us know. Some Somebody's got to start you know, tracking this stuff. So... Moving on to our next topic, it'll be a rather, it'll be a shorter one, and I apologize, but it is one I wanted to cover because I've been getting a lot of questions about it lately. We're going to talk about feeding schedules. Now, anyone that's watched my YouTube videos knows I always put on there something along the lines of this. I basically tell them, this is what I do with slings, this is how often what I feed my juveniles, and this is how often what I feed my adults. And for me, that's just what I do, and I always try to, although sometimes I forget to put it on there, put that little caveat, that little disclaimer, if you will, at the end that says something along the lines of pick a schedule that works for you. The keeper should pick a schedule that works for them. And I mean that. I truly mean that. But I think what happens is some people will watch my videos. They'll see my schedule and think that's the be all end all. And they'll kind of tune out that part where I said, pick one that works for you. Now, when you just start off picking somebody that's been keeping for a while and emulating what they do, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think a lot of us do that. I know when I originally came up with a feeding schedule for mine, I'd read a lot. I identified a couple keepers that seemed to know what they were doing. And I kind of emulated that. However, that once you get going in this hobby, you start feeling a little more comfortable. It's perfectly permissible for you to come up with your own feeding schedule. One person's feeding schedule may be very different from another person's feeding schedule, and neither of them is incorrect or correct. We need to acknowledge that. So, for example, I had somebody emailed me recently, and this is what kind of brought this to the forefront as an idea I maybe should touch on. They were talking to somebody that fed their spiders once a month, and they were very concerned that those spiders were starving, and they told this person, you should be feeding them more often, and then, unfortunately, it was like, I listen to Tom Moran, and he feeds his slings twice a week, his juveniles once a week, his adults weekly or bi-weekly, and they kind of put it as, like, that's the be-all, end-all. It's not. Feeding them once a month is totally fine. I know a lot of keepers that generally only feed theirs. They get a bunch of crickets or roaches once a month and they feed all their their animals and it's perfectly fine. You can feed slings, juveniles, and adults at the same time. I know a lot of folks that have smaller collections and what they do is they go out, they buy a bunch of crickets, they feed all of their slings, juveniles, adults, and then they move on and they do it again next month. There's nothing wrong with that. I think part of the problem is, A, one of the issues is we come into the hobby having kept animals that need to eat at least once a day. So it's always freaky to sit there and look at these guys and go, they could go months without eating. There's been situations, uh, I think the longest one I heard, and feel free to chime in if you got a longer one, but I believe it was a G. Porteri that had gone close to a year and a half without eating. And then she started eating again was fine. They can go long periods of time, the majority of them without eating and be perfectly fine. So we need to keep that in mind. We also need to keep in mind in the wild, 
They are very opportunistic with their hunting. They basically wait for something to come by within striking distance, grab it. Sometimes food may be more bountiful. There may be huge stretches where they don't have anything. That's why they're able to reserve their energy for those moments when they really have to strike and grab something. So I think for us, it's tough when you're keeping an animal. What is one of the biggest parts of keeping an animal? It's it's feeding it. And when you have an animal that can go a month with no problem, could go two months. I remember somebody telling me that they fed theirs every two months. They fattened them up. They gave them a big meal, and then they gave them two months off, and theirs were all. They showed me pictures. They were in beautiful shape. There was no issues with them. So let's remember we don't have to have super aggressive schedules. If we do decide to feed them more often than not, that's more of the keeper's decision and something that they're choosing to do rather than something the spider requires, and that's really important. So let me explain the theory behind what I do, and then I will open it up into a couple things to consider when you are thinking about what your feeding schedule is going to be. We've mentioned slings already. My thing is slings tend to be rather fragile, and I want them out of that fragile sling stage as quickly as possible. I want them to be larger, beefier, more hardy, have that waxy coating that keeps them from dehydrating super easily. So when I get slings, I usually feed mine twice a week. I feed them smaller meals. So I'm not feeding them huge items, but the idea is to, in that fragile stage, whatever type of sling it may be, a tiny little Alphonopelma species or a much larger Theraphosa species, I try to get them beefed up a bit to that juvenile stage where they start start showing some of those adult colors, and then I ease off a bit. Now, something to consider, and I've run into this several times with folks that are keeping especially smaller slings that they're feeding pre-killed, if you have a half-inch sling, and you drop in a half-inch pre-killed cricket, that meal might be enough for it to fill up right then and there and go into pre-mole. And I've had many folks be like, hey, I got this sling, I fed it this nice big fat pre-killed roach, and it ate almost the whole thing, it's super fat, and now it won't eat, I'm freaking out. Well, no, what ended up happening is it was able, it probably set up, I've had slings sit on prey for like 24 hours eating, they fed, they filled up, their body tells them, all right, we got enough nutrients stored, we got enough nutrients to do what we need to do as far as molting, and so they're not going to eat anymore. So that's a totally natural occurrence. So understand when you're feeding slings, if you're feeding them much larger meals, you may have a sling only eat once or twice before molting again. Totally natural, not anything to be afraid of. Now, on the flip side of that, if you're feeding your sling super tiny items, I've had a lot of folks who are like, hey, I'm feeding my flightless fruit flies and it hasn't gone to pre-molt yet. Those flightless fruit flies are tiny. And yes, they're good for really, really teeny tiny slings. But for ones that like half an inch or larger, know that they have to eat quite a few of them to get any nutrients. I mean, they really are small. So understand if you're feeding very, very tiny prey, it may take them a while to go into pre-molt. I use an example, when I first got into the hobby and started keeping slings, I used a lot of red runners. And I was using very small, the little nymph red runners to feed, after a while, larger slings. And what was happening is I'd drop in like a red runner or two and then feed it, you know, a few days later, a few days later, it took forever for them to go into pre-molt because they weren't filling up. They were very small prey items. And it took me a while to figure out what was going on because I had read people that had bought things the same time I did that theirs were already double in size of mine. And part of it was due to the fact that I was feeding them smaller prey. So something to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind across the board is if you're trying to fatten your tarantula up and get it to put on size more quickly, it's not so much about the food, it's about the temperature. So those folks that keep their tarantulas at high higher temperatures year round and feed them more will get much faster growth rate. When I was keeping my tarantulas in the mid to high 60s back in the day at the old house before I had a little supplemental heat in that room, I found that they were growing a little more slowly than people that were keeping them in the 70s. That's something to note. And I've spoken to people that keep some of the even slowest growing speeds. There seems to be like this temperature where it really jacks up their growth rate. That's fine. You know, though, however, just pumping them full of food doesn't always bring that fast growth. What can happen, and I've seen this with many species, including Formictopus, who are gluttons when it comes to eating, if you feed them, they fatten up. And if the temperatures aren't particularly high, what you get is a very long pre-molt period. So this tends to freak folks out that are new to the hobby because they've got their spider, it's eaten a bunch of times, it's going into pre-molt, and then months go by, and the thing's sitting there looking fat, it's slow, and it's not molting, and then they think their tarantula is broke, for lack of better terms. Again, that happens quite a bit. I've done it. Formictibus, that was the one thing I noticed with Formictibus, is once they hit around that four or five inch mark or so, I would fatten them up. I loved feeding them, so I was probably feeding them more than I normally would. It was dropping big prey items in. They were fattening up, fattening up, fattening up. And then they would go in some cases over a year. I think I had one of them that literally, I've been in this house now, we're going on 
Next month, it'll be two years. So it had been at least, we'll say, a year and three quarters since she had molted. That's how long it went between molts. So that's normal too. And even some folks, I hear from folks that keep them at higher temperatures, still running this. If you feed them, if you have an aggressive feeding schedule, and this you'll see a lot more with juveniles, young adults and such. If you're feeding them every other day or so, and I've spoken to a lot of folks, oh, I like to feed my mind, loves eating every other day. It will, they are opportunistic. So if they can, you know, for lack of a better term, fill their humps quickly, they're going to do it. It behooves them that if there is an abundance of prey to eat as much of that prey as they can catch and hold onto and wrap up so that they can fill up because they don't know the next time they're getting fed. They don't realize they're in some, you know, weird man or woman's collection who's going to drop food in there regularly, you know, every week or every couple weeks or so. So recognize that's the only issue I've seen with people that have the really aggressive. I, I don't see a need for a really aggressive schedule. I mean, I've had a couple folks email me recently with, you know, hey, I feed mine four times a week or whatever. That's honestly, I feel like that's a little bit of an overkill. Is it wrong? You can't say that it's wrong because in the wild it would do it, but it's not necessary. I think that's the important part to consider. You do not need to feed them that much. So we've covered slings. Now let's talk a bit about juveniles. So juveniles, obviously spiders are all different sizes. If you have a dwarf species, a juvenile dwarf species might be the size or smaller than a sling of, say, a theraphosa species, one of the large tropical species. So I usually, when I'm talking about juveniles, for the standard six-inch spider, you know, the one that's six inches is adult, you're usually looking at something that's around an inch and three-quarters to two inches. But a better way to measure it is when they're starting to show some adult colors or they're basically molting out of their sling color. So they're starting to look like little furry spiders as opposed to little shiny slings. That's usually when we start thinking about juveniles. So it can differ from species to species. That's why that term is so confusing. It's really arbitrary. One person's juvenile, maybe another person's large sling, maybe another person's young adult. But that's how I usually base juvenile. For juveniles, they've picked up some size They're out of that sling stage. They're much more hardy, usually a bit more bold. That's when I start slowing down the schedule a bit. So most of my juveniles, for many, many, many years, I would switch my juveniles over to being fed once a week. And I would usually feed them larger prey. You're usually talking about a point where they're too big for the small ones, but they're maybe a little small for the large crickets and roaches, but you may feed them a large one anyway. Keep in mind, again, larger prey, you don't have to feed them nearly as much. So if I'm feeding mine larger prey, I might even wait two weeks with the juveniles. Most it's a week, but some of them I know if, I'm, if they're eating big meals, I'm going to back off a little bit and give them some space as far as the feeding is concerned. That said, once again, I know folks that feed theirs once a month without issue. I know folks that even feed them fewer times than that without issue. So recognize if you can't. The other thing is sometimes you get people freaking out. I remember when the pandemic first hit and people were not able to find crickets and feeders and they were worried about pet stores being closed and people were freaking out. And I was getting emails that were like, Tom, it's been two weeks. I haven't been able to feed my spiders. I don't know where I can find any food for them. That's nothing to ever panic about. They will be just fine. So juveniles, again, you don't need to feed them twice a week. You don't even need to feed them Once a week, pick a schedule that works for you. And then once again, if you're feeding them larger prey, they definitely don't need to be fed as often. In the wild, they would not be necessarily, I mean, it's going to be like we've talked about. There's times where they'll probably have an abundance. There's times they probably won't have much food at all. Recognize it's if you're feeding them more often, it's because of you, not the spider. Now onto adults. Adults for the longest time I was feeding once a week. And then I backed off and realized that again with some of my like Formictopus species, my Theraphosa species, I was fattening them up so quickly that I was just getting these long pre-molt periods. So I started stretching it out and I was doing bi-weekly. Now there are species like my Brachypelma, Grimmastola, Fonapelmas that I will feed once a month. And I went back to the old days where I had my G. porteri. G. porteri, you could feed them five crickets once a month. They're perfectly fine. I never had, the queen never fasted for me until she was obviously on her way out and stopped eating. She had never fasted for me. And I think part of that was I didn't overfeed her. She was always receptive to food because I would give her four or five crickets and then I would take some time off. So depending on the species, some of them, my grandma stolas, brachypelmas, Afonapelma, the older Afonapelma species, once a month or so is perfectly fine. I could even go less than that, honestly, but I choose once a month or so. Every once in a while, I will go bi-weekly. Some of my other species, my faster-growing species, my Zenestis species, my Theraphosa species, my Formictopus species, those I'm feeding bi-weekly now. And again, this is just my schedule. This isn't the right schedule. I'm explaining what I do. They could easily be fed once a month. They could be fed if they had larger meals once every other month even. They'll be fine. And as far as meal sizes... 
Big Dubia are great for the larger ones. I've used multiple crickets. I love watching my larger species chase down big fat crickets and they get like six or seven of them. They wrap them all up and they make like a little cricket burrito with them. Whatever you choose to do, know they can eat decent sized meals and that when you feed them decent sized meals, you can lay off a little bit. You don't have to feed them as often. Now, are there times where I like to feed them a little more often than I normally would? Yes. The big one is after a molt. A lot of us want to see our spiders eat after a molt. A lot of us want to see our spiders put on some size after a molt. They can look rather skinny and emaciated after a molt. and It kind of freaks us out. So we tend to feed them bigger meals. That's why I will with slings, juveniles or adults after a molt, I usually try to give them a little bit larger. Larger meals so they can fill up a little bit, but then I will back off and go to my normal schedule. So, for example, both of my Formictopus species Dominican purples just molted. They're both eating again. For both of them, I fed them their first meal, big fat dubia roach. Second meal, like a week later, big fat dubia roach. Once I saw that both had eaten and rather large meals for the first couple of meals, then I backed off a bit and now I'm back to my normal schedule. So when they, I, I'm one of those ones that when they molt, I do want to see them get some, you know, right off the bat, replace some of that energy they lost during that exhaustive molting process. So I will feed them larger meals and I will feed them a little more often for that first month or so. But then once again, I back off to a normal feeding schedule. So when feeding is concerned, I'm, when I talk about it in my videos and I'm editing a video right now as an Estes, I'll make sure I say it as well. I always try to put in there, pick a schedule that works for you. I seriously mean that. If you feed them more often, that's fine. You know what you to expect. You may have those longer pre-molt periods. You may have chubby spiders for longer whatever but if you feed them less often don't freak out about it don't have it be a source of stress they will do perfectly fine being fed less often and you know when you get into the growth rates and everything there are some species those fast growing species that you will in effect prolong their life if you feed them less often it's not much of a it's, it's not really a big deal with the slower growing species like a fauna pelma forget about it you're not going to change that but for some species the faster growing ones yes you could really shorten their lifespan if you're feeding them a lot if you're keeping them you know warm and feeding them a lot that will shorten their lifespan a bit because they have shorter overall lifespans but pick a schedule that works for you if you want to start off by emulating what i do that's why i put that out there so people know exactly what i'm doing they can feel safe with it but then don't feel bad or don't feel like you're doing something wrong if you decide to alter that schedule and do something a little different totally cool with it i've had folks email me before i feed them once a month great that's awesome i for me a lot of times, and I will admit, a lot of times is the fact that I'm going to do some type of husbandry video on them. I usually like to show them off when they're showing adult colors, so I don't mind if they grow a little more quickly so I can get one of those done earlier. Usually when I post up anything that involves a sling, people are like, I can't wait to do a husbandry video on this. And I don't like doing the full husbandry videos until I've grown them up and shown I can actually raise them correctly. So that's something, a reason why I feed them a little more often, but even now I'm starting to back off a bit. It's not as important to me. It's like when they're ready, they're ready. You know, I do sometimes rehousing videos in between and show what I've done up to that point. So it's not so much of a big deal anymore, but let's not bicker over it anymore. Let's not give people a hard time. They're feeding them more often. Let's not give people a hard time. They're feeding them less often. Worry about yourself, find a schedule that you're comfortable with and your spider will be fine. So that will do it for this one. Again, for folks overseas or in different countries, Canada, whatever you may be, Philippines, please feel free to let me know. If you want to shoot an email, you don't want it public. You don't want to leave a comment. That's fine. But I would love to know, what strictures do you, what limitations do you have? Legal hurdles do you have with collecting them? Or do you not have any? I know there's cities that they can't keep certain ones. I know there's import rules. I'd love to be able to talk about that in a future episode for folks who are not in the U.S. That, you know, obviously our laws don't really impact them. So please feel free to chime in either via email or comment. You can find me on tomsbigspiders.com. You can find me on Tom's Big Spiders, the podcast. You can find me on YouTube where I'll be doing Zenestis Tenebris. Hopefully I get it finished today. I'm we just shot it. I'm, it's been a really hectic couple of weeks with work and stuff going on at home. So trying to keep up with that weekly video and podcast. We'll see if I get this one done, but keep an eye out for that. It'll be on the podcast website and obviously YouTube. Guys, that'll do it for this one. As always, stay safe and we'll catch you all next time.